So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privileged opportunity to gather in your presence. In this night and in the nights to come, keep us open to listen to your word. Calm any anxiety, fear, or worries that might be in our hearts. And allow us to listen attentively to that message and those graces you've individually chosen for each one of us and collectively to hear as a community. We ask this as all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. A reading from the second book of Kings. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, request whatever you might do and want before I am talking taken from you. Elisha answered, may I receive a double portion of your spirit? He replied, have you asked of something that is not easy? Still, if you see me taken up from you, your wish will be granted otherwise not. As they walked on still conversing, a fiery chariot and fiery horses became, became between the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, and Elisha saw it happen. He cried out, My father, my father, Israel's chariot and steeds. Then he saw him no longer. He gripped his own garment, tore it in two pieces, and picked up the mantle which had fallen from Elijah. Then he went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. Wheeling the mantle which had fallen from Elijah, he struck the water and said, The Lord, the God of Elijah, where is he now? He struck the water and then it divided, and he crossed over. The guild prophets in Jericho were on the other side, saw him and said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They went to meet him. Bowing to the ground before him, they said, Among your servants are fifty brave men. Let them go in search of your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has lifted him up and left him on some mountain or in some valley. <clears throat> he answered, Do not send them. But they kept urging him until he was embarrassed and said to them, So they sent the fifty men. They searched for three days without finding him. When they returned to Elisha and Jericho, where he was staying, he said to them, Did I tell you not to go? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When um, I started out at Mundelein a couple of years ago uh, as the rector, I knew that one of the things I'd have to deal with was wells. I mean, now we're privileged to have Lake Michigan water like you guys have had here for a long time. But for the last hundred years, it was well water over there in Mundelein and really hard well water. And I hadn't thought a lot about wells growing up in Chicago, so I was rapidly getting an education on just how much work goes into maintaining a well for 1,100 acres, which is what that place is. And thinking about wells and learning about wells, 
began to realize, you know, there's an awful lot that goes into this. Where you put them, how deep you want to go down, how you handle the filtering, how you maintain it. Because I would have thought a well is a well is a well. But they're pretty unstable things, and you constantly have to work at them. And there's a lot of intentionality there. That being the case, I also wanted to think about, well, why do you put one here and not one there? I mean, we got water all over this place. This part of the country is one giant aquifer. So what's the difference between putting a well here and putting a well there? And I remember our maintenance guys looking at me and politely saying, as politely as you'd say to a priest, the seminarians don't have this problem, but the staff do. <laughs> More or less saying, you fool. There's certain places that are much better than others. And you've got to notice, and you've got to pay attention. So I rapidly learned about wells, at least more or less. What I didn't realize I'd also have to worry about at Mundelein is sinkholes. Because believe it or not, we've got those too. And I've talked to some of my priest friends in Florida, and they can't believe that we really have them, but we do. We've got them over there, and we've got them for the same reason that we have the wells. There is underground water all over the place. And if you ask some of the seminarians sometime, they'll tell you. The latest one we had opened up right in a parking lot. It was easily large enough to swallow a car. We had a sinkhole open up right in front of the gymnasium just before our basketball tournament. And we've since had two others open up on the road around the lake. So go on, take a ride, have a run. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Interesting difference, though, between a well and a sinkhole, right? I mean, a well, you put a lot of thought into, and you dig it in a spot with great intentionality, and you think you more or less can control it. A sinkhole, you have none of that. And yet, at some level, they're doing the same thing. They're big holes in the ground that usually lead you to where the water is. But just think about that for a minute. And by now you're feeling ripped off because you came for a parish mission and you're hearing about underground water. But think for a minute about the difference between a well and a sinkhole. Those sinkholes are so powerful. They can be destructive. And maybe you're on the edge of one, maybe you're not. Maybe you're standing over one, maybe not. And when they go, they go and you have no control, but sometimes they're the ones that point you to where the real sensitivity in the ground is. I'd like to suggest that here at St. Joe's, you've got a massive sinkhole. Father Trout, plug your ears. <laughs> you have a massive sinkhole, but it's masquerading as a well. It's masquerading as something that very intentionally you control, You've designed it. You've very carefully taken care of what it looks like. You fill it when you want. You empty it when you choose. But it is a gaping sinkhole. And by now you can probably guess it's right in front of me at the end of this aisle. If we only knew what we had access to when we talk about baptism or any of the sacraments, but let's focus on baptism because that's what gets it all started. It looks like a well, doesn't it? In fact, if you're a little on the snooty side, when you walk into a new church, the first thing you do is check out their baptismal font, you know? 
Baptism font envy, it exists. Just want you to know that. And there it is. It's constructed, it's placed, it's designed. It's carefully orchestrated, right? We all walk in, families come. Lots of times you don't even notice it, probably if it's in your own church. And yet think about what we say about it. We say that this is the place where the Holy Spirit comes upon us in such a powerful way. Do we really know we're standing over a sinkhole? Something so wildly more powerful than we are that we could never control it. We could never predict exactly where it's going to open up and maybe swallow us. We could never really tell or control its power. And yet, of course, that's the thing about the spiritual life. It's where the Hollywood movies get it all wrong. The paranormal doesn't have the power to move things around in the world. It's only the power of invitation. The power of the Spirit is the power of persuasion. The power of the Spirit is the power of love. The power of the Spirit, if we don't embrace it, is the power of rejection. Not because of what the Spirit is doing, but because we have the freedom to say yes or no. And so we can delude ourselves into thinking, yeah, a sinkhole is something I really got to worry about. I'm going to stay up late at night worrying about that sinkhole. We can stay up even later worrying about the new baptismal font that we've designed. All those things, all that stuff, all that materiality. And yet if we only knew this giant sinkhole of the Spirit that we are standing over right now. And that's just what I'm inviting us to think about in this time we spend together. That if you're like me, we know all the right words, right? The first time you taught your little two-year-old how to make the sign of the cross, you told them everything they ever need to know about Catholic theology. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But what does that mean and what does that look like? And how do we begin to tap into it in such a powerful way? And all I want to do is try to suggest that it's incredibly pragmatic. It really does look like something. Now, it's always going to be supernatural. It's not going to look like something you can taste or measure. But it does look like something, and it manifests itself in our presence. Let me tell you about a sinkhole I fell into now almost 20 years ago. Just about every priest you'll ever meet has his breviary, his prayer book, stuffed with little cards, little holy cards, little mementos that you collect along the way. Here's a little tip for you. You can always judge the holiness of your priest by looking at his breviary, right? <laughs> if all he has is, you know, the ace of spades or something in there, you should be pretty, pretty suspicious. But, um... A lot of times these cards are funeral cards, funeral mass cards. And of course, if you're a parish priest, you're privileged really to celebrate the funeral mass for thousands and thousands of people. But there are always going to be some people who impact you more directly, not because they're more special or they're more worthy of attention, but for different reasons you get involved in their lives. Sometimes you know them, sometimes you don't, but for different reasons you are drawn in. And maybe you never see the family again after accompanying them through that period of grieving, but they never quite leave your mind or your heart. And oftentimes, those are the ones marked by the little funeral cards. 
This is one that goes all the way back to when I was a seminarian. And I was living full-time in a parish internship like you guys get seminarians here. And I was just kind of getting my feet wet. It was my first chance out of the seminary. You're in the parish. That's what these guys live for. Right now, our second-year seminarians are off on their parish immersion. And I was only there for a little bit over a week. And one night, somebody starts pounding on the door. And it was pretty late at night. And as often happens, this was the pastor's day off, so he wasn't there. And it was just the associate. And the associate clearly was taking advantage of his opportunity to remind me that he was a priest and I was not. That was kind of coming out rather early on. And so anyways, it's literally very late at night, much later than you'd expect someone to be knocking on the door. But it wasn't just a knocking, it was a pounding on the door. And the only word I could use to describe it is wailing. It was a woman wailing at the top of her voice. I mean, every time I read that biblical word now, I think about that night. And she's pounding on the door and pounding on the door. And if there's one thing I learned that night, it was never ignore those moments. And I'll admit, I was scared and I didn't know what to do and I was waiting for the associate to do something. Never let those moments go. So eventually we go down. But almost like the story, the parable, right? The person pounds on the door and the guy inside doesn't want to get up and answer it. It was almost like that. I'm not proud to say it, but it was almost like that. So we open the door and it's a woman from the parish. I hadn't met her yet. I'd only been there about a week. And she's just inconsolable. And she's screaming, my daughter, my daughter. What is it? What? Can we call 911? No. Come with me. We go over to the house. And very tragically, her daughter had taken her life. And she was still there. This woman hadn't even, the mom hadn't even called 911, which probably for most of us would have been the immediate instinct. But for her first instinct was to run the half a block down the street and just pound on the door. And she was beside herself. She barely knew what to say. Was an eighth grader in the school probably know those things happen more often than we want to admit. So all of that horrible evening unfolds and eventually the funeral mass comes. This was a young girl named Susan Carton, born July 8th, 1984. Died March 20th, 2000. Buried March 24th, 2000. On March 24th, 2000, my life changed forever, and it will never change back. You can imagine what the funeral mass was like for that young girl. There was a school at the parish, so the place was packed with kids and their families, and they're trying to wrap their heads around, what does it mean to, to die at such a young age? What was going through this girl's mind? What was going through the family's mind? All of that going on. The church was just this hive of anxiety and worry and, and everything that you might imagine. And there I was, right? I want to be a priest. There I am. And I was about as animated as one of these stone pillars in the back of the church. I barely even remember it myself. What I do remember is when the pastor of that parish 
got a hold of me later that night and basically said, what in the world is going on? Here you are, you're the seminary intern, you know? You're at least somewhat closer to these kids in age than I am. You haven't said a word. You didn't say anything. You didn't try to console them. You didn't try to talk to the families. You, you didn't do anything. You just stood there like a rock. And for the first time in my life, in that particular area, what I had thought of as a carefully constructed well became a sinkhole. What was my carefully constructed well? Well, what it would mean to be a priest. I'll be there at times like this. I'll, I'll go and I'll serve when I'm called. I'll be with people in the midst of their suffering. It'll be hard, I know. Won't be nearly as enjoyable as the weddings, but I'll be there at those moments. And I'm going to study really hard and I'm going to read these books on pastoral care and I'll know the right things to say. And I'll, I'll come up with something for a funeral homily and, and I'll really try to be a comfort. And that's what I'll do. And there are people who can help me do that. It's my well. Here's where I'm going to dig it. Here's who I'm going to ask. This is what I'm going to read. And all of a sudden that moment came and this gaping hole opened up beneath me. Talking with the pastor, who was a good pastor, a good pastor, a good mentor, I don't know, maybe a good spouse, is 70% coach and 30% SO you know what. And they call you out when you need to be called out. And I found myself talking to him about something I thought I could probably skate all the way through seminary and never have to think about. And once I got through seminary, then priesthood would be a piece of cake because nobody would be calling me out then. So I grew up in a household. My mom struggled with uh, depression various times, sometimes more serious than others. Uh, I was the youngest, so by the time I came along, that was illness that she really was struggling with quite a bit. And there was a time when she tried to take her own life. I was still in grade school at the time, and she didn't succeed at that. She eventually recovered. But I remember those nights and days of going to the hospital and wanting her to be awake and conscious and just say, oh, you know, John, I'm so good to see you here. And I knew this wasn't an illness like anything else. This wasn't like overcoming the flu. There was something here that was a lot more. And we sort of worked through it as a family, and she got better, and she came back. But I never tried to unpack whatever that did to my eighth-grade self. I never tried to really sort out or understand what was going on there. And as often happens with the youngest in a big family, pretty soon everyone moves away and the dynamics of the household change radically. And then you're kind of like an only child and high school comes and goes pretty quickly. You're off to college and then life goes on. I'd never once sat down and tried to understand what was that all about as I go on in life eventually into the seminary, into priesthood. Yeah, I knew that that had happened and certainly prayed for my mom and hoped for the best there and was grateful that things had turned out other than they might have turned out. And then I started reading about and studying as a seminarian, 
how families might have to deal with this, never once thinking that it was something I really needed to. And then that day in 2000, March 24th, when we were there, all of a sudden it came flooding back. And I guess it shouldn't be that surprising, maybe at some level, but when I said my life changed forever on that day, it's because for me, and I really believe this, that's when I met the Holy Spirit, eyeball to eyeball. I didn't meet him in all the baptisms I'd been at before. Oh, he was there, don't doubt that. But it wasn't a meeting that I really had. And I had been a godfather a couple of times. I didn't meet him, not proud to say this as Father John, I wouldn't say I met him at my confirmation. He was there, absolutely, the bishop was there. I was thinking about other things. Why is this line so long? Ask your bishop, friends. But he was there. And I'd been told that he was there. And I saw the flames, right? All, all the artwork about the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit. But I didn't meet him. And with brutal honesty, I wish I could tell you otherwise. I wish I could say, no, you'll be swept off your feet by the Spirit. The Spirit will come. You know, just wait for Pentecost. Then it's going to happen. You can set your watch by it. Just wait till that baptism. Oh, it's the most glorious day. And it is glorious for lots of reasons. But it's not always the case that we meet the Spirit at those orchestrated moments. The Spirit is there. I'm not denying that for a minute. But we can't dig our wells when it comes to the Holy Spirit. We can't orchestrate it. We can build the most beautiful baptismal font you can get the Pope to celebrate your confirmation. You can have the most extraordinary sacramental celebration. And of course, all of our sacraments revolve around the work of the Holy Spirit. But it will never be an encounter unless and until you are prepared to look eyeball to eyeball with that Spirit's presence. And we can't orchestrate those moments sometimes in wonderful, joyous ways, sometimes in gut-wrenching, painful, difficult experiences. But it's those moments when we find ourselves wondering, how did I get here? What's coming next? Can I be free of this thing that's confining me? All the different reasons you might give, and joyful ones as well. I didn't deserve this. How did I wind up here? Are you sure you're talking to the right person? but those moments that really do knock us on our butts. There's a reason why Paul wound up there to start the whole thing going. When he was knocked off the horse that he wasn't on and he fell back. There's a reason why God operates that way. And I can't tell you why it looks the way for you it looks and why it looks for me the way it looks, but I do know that the dynamic is always the same. It's always something that erupts into the midst of an otherwise placid pool. And the fountain, the well, becomes a sinkhole. Not where you expected it, not when you expected it, almost certainly not how you expected it. That's the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who were at Mass today and you know, heard some of the words that I shared, what I was trying to get across there is Every now and then, there come moments when we're face-to-face -face with our need, 
face to face with our neediness. And that's when the Holy Spirit's going to turn up. The Holy Spirit is not a cheerleader just sitting in the bleachers saying, hey, this is going great, you know, good job. That'll happen in heaven. I'm sure the Holy Spirit is an amazing cheerleader in heaven. But for now, where we need the Holy Spirit is precisely where we have any need at all. And so I asked us to think about this morning or last night, where is your deepest need? Where do you feel confined? Where do you feel constrained? Because for some of us, where we're constrained is very easy to see, right? Remember I talked about the ad from Alcoholics Anonymous? If you're struggling with an addiction, even if it's not alcohol, and you hear somebody say, if you go for a next hit, that's your business. And you're thinking, oh my God, who put that thing in there? Why do they see me? I thought I was hiding. And then you hear, but if you want to stop, that's our business. Who? Who is this who? Whose business is it? I want that to be my business. I didn't want to be here. I didn't choose to be here. I didn't ask to have a family where this sort of thing erupted. I didn't choose to have my mom struggling with what she struggled with. She certainly didn't choose it herself. And I definitely didn't choose to be turned into a pillar of stone on the one night that I would have predicted in advance, boy, you're going to shine, Mr. Seminarian. This will be your night. Bet the other seminarians don't have this. And when that moment comes, the neediness, you start wearing it like a coat. And everybody can see it, and oftentimes you're the last one to see it yourself. But when you recognize it, when that moment comes, that's when the Spirit is there. And it's a critical moment, right? It's one of those hinge moments. Because at that moment, you've got a choice. You either say, all right, the need is here. I do want to stop. Whose business is that? I do want to be healed. I do want to be present. I don't want to go one more time down this road. But that's only option one. There's always option two. And option two is, whoa, wait a minute. Let me just take another step back. If the sinkhole doesn't swallow you up, you backpedal. And if you backpedal quickly enough, you'll get back on the pavement. And you kind of look at it and say, gosh, there but for the grace of God go I. It's a nice phrase, you know, put it on a pincushion and send it to your grandma. There but for the grace of God go I. And the Holy Spirit saying, you fool, the grace of God wanted to kick you in there and you wouldn't go. And it's at those moments when you can say, this is my prison. This is the thing that's keeping me hemmed in. It's at that moment that you're ready to say, come Holy Spirit, right? All those prayers to the Holy Spirit, that's how they begin, right? Come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Veni Sancti Spiritus. What a nice thing to say and how hard it is to mean it. It's funny, we have an expression, speak of the devil and he will come. Speak of the Holy Spirit and he'll come twice as fast. But it's easy not to speak of the Holy Spirit in a serious way because the message of the Holy Spirit is I'll be there 
but you have to receive me. And I'll only really be there in a way that you can receive me, probably at a time or a moment where you just assume I didn't show up. Just take a look, if you would, at the sheet that you have, the handout, the scripture quotes. And of course, it's really only through scripture that we know about the Holy Spirit, right? And that's a beautiful thing. You can imagine God, you know, if, if you'd never heard about God before, every culture has its God. If you look at the world around you, if you look at the power of nature, if you experience the power of love, it's not hard to imagine that people would invent gods if they'd never been told about a god. There's got to be some force greater than me. There's got to be something responsible for all this majesty around me in nature. It makes a lot of sense to me that someone would come up with God. And it even makes sense to me that someone would think of God becoming human. Right? Look at all the other mythologies of the world. Zeus got his kicks out of becoming human all the time. There's no shortage of myths there. The Norse gods, they become human occasionally. So it isn't that striking that God might become human. Of course, what Christians say about that is radically different. But this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit is something very different. This isn't God turned into a wind. This isn't like Zephyr, right, the wind god. The Holy Spirit of Christianity is something entirely unique. And what we learn through Scripture is that we only get that Spirit because He's sent on a very specific mission. And it's a mission that's meant to meet us where we most need to be met. And it's usually a place, a time, where we don't want to be met. The way we've structured these three nights is to sort of work through Scripture in a temporal way. So to think tonight about that area of Scripture where you don't necessarily get a whole lot written, what we call the Old Testament, what Jesus would have called his precious Scriptures, and just to think about how that Spirit turns up. And of course, turns up right at the beginning. doesn't get any earlier than Genesis 1.1. If any one of the three persons of the Trinity has bragging rights, it's the Holy Spirit. I'm there. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, when darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters. What I want to stress here is that nothing has been created yet. God hasn't said, let there be anything. And the wind is there. The Spirit sets the stage for everything that comes next. And it hovers. The word there translated, it's like what a bird does over its nest. It hovers. It's as if something is being hatched. Something new is about to be created, but it hasn't been created yet. And what is it that sets the stage? It's that Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, if we only knew what we were asking for. Spirit, wash over me like the wind of God hovering over the water, not creating something yet, but preparing for creation. What is it inside of you that's on the verge of hatching? Sounds like alien, right? But 
No. In a way, Alien gets it right. Gets it right much more graphically, maybe, than these oh-so-familiar Scripture passages. What's the terror of that movie? What if one of those things is inside of me? What could happen? Watch out. There could be trouble. Spoiler alert. There's something inside of you and me. And what if it hatched? What if that deep recognition for the need that we all have, what if it hatched? What if it hatches this night? What if there's a text that you haven't picked up yet? And please keep it that way till we're done. (laughs) What if there's a text that you haven't checked yet and you check it on the way out and all of a sudden your entire world turns upside down? The Holy Spirit is here now and he wants to hatch Whatever is going to come to the surface when you read that message. What if there's an old memory that's been easy to keep pushed away and for whatever reason now it's ready to hatch? The Holy Spirit wants to set that table. And I get it, an atheist, a skeptic could say, oh look, all you're doing is talking about psychology. And I would say that's exactly what I'm talking about. In your Greek Bible, spirit, psuche, that's the psuch of psychology. All our psych words, they're borrowing a very holy term, psuche, spirit. Yeah, we have brains, and the spirit works with the brains that we have. And the spirit over the waters of chaos, waiting, preparing, so that something new can be hatched that wasn't there before. Every one of us has something inside of us that's germinating. And maybe tonight is just an invitation to say, like the guy hearing the message on the bus, if you want to go one more round around the track that's gotten you nowhere for five years, five decades, okay, that's your choice. If you want to break free, that's mine. I can help you. I can show you. But step one, the step of the Old Testament, is simply holding out that offer, laying the stage, setting the table. Famously, we know, before you go, even just a few verses on, if you want to have life, if you want to have human life, then you need that breath of God. God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It's that same hatching breath, that same hatching spirit. It isn't just what sets the stage for creation. It's what sets the stage for us. And the beautiful thing about the Semitic world, the Hebrew Bible world, as opposed to Paul's world, of the later New Testament, is that don't think of this as a ball of clay into which some spirit was stuck and now it's kind of rattling around inside of it. Like maybe that's what a soul is. God just kind of snorted some soul into this ball of clay. For them, a human person is infused with the Spirit. It's not that God's breath is in you and it could go out of you. It's you're not a human being until every ounce of you is literally infused with this breath of life. I'm making that point to say it's not like this dead clay suddenly springs to life. It's as if God himself is taking a part of himself and saying, now I'm going to share it with my creation.
we are in the image and likeness of that God, right? Scripture tells us that. Nobody ever derived it. I don't care how smart the theologian was. And so it's there. I'm offering that as a point of encouragement. As I was standing there like the stone-faced seminarian, whether I knew it or not, and certainly the other kids from the school around there wouldn't have known it to look at me, and that mom who pounded on the door inconsolably that terrible night wouldn't have known it to look at me. But as I was there, that spirit was inside of me, waiting to be hatched. It's inside every one of us in this room. But you've got to name it. And a lot of times we can't name it ourselves. That's what people who love us do for us. I cannot tell you what a debt I owe to that pastor. He's still a priest, in spite of me being with him for two months. He's retired now, and I remind him every time I see him. And as you might imagine, for him, it's like he got a jar of his memory, and he's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I remember we had that conversation. Because for him, it meant something in the moment, but it wasn't life-changing for him, and that's okay. I will never forget it. And for him, it was a moment. And that's often how it is with the Spirit. For most of us, your Pentecost is not going to be something that other people write about and preserve for 2,000 years. Your Pentecost isn't going to be you standing on the rooftop shouting in tongues, probably. And that's okay. When that moment comes that we're ready to allow what is inside of us to hatch and come out, that extraordinary moment when the carefully constructed well suddenly becomes a gaping sinkhole and we've decided now's the time, I'm not going to backpedal, I'm not going to reach for a lifeline, I'm just going to let myself fall into wherever this is leading me. But as I said, a lot of times we need people to help us know that moment. We need someone. When we say, hey, throw me a lifeline, and they say, uh-uh, I'm pulling that hook away. You need to fall. You need to fall hard, you need to fall deep, and you need to fall fast. Sometimes we call those things interventions. Sometimes we call them loving encouragements and affirmations and embraces. Sometimes we call them waking up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night because we ourselves realize that this is a moment and I can't ignore it anymore and something is hatching inside of me. I'll be brutally honest to use one of my favorite phrases. Being here tonight with you is one of the most difficult things that I've had to do recently and it has nothing to do with you. If you go on my Facebook page, the first thing you'll notice is that I almost never use my Facebook page. <laughs> you'll see that my last post was, I don't know, I can't even tell you. But what you'll also notice is that the picture I have for my Facebook page is a large picture of a very kindly looking elderly man, very wise looking man. And if it's the priest's Facebook page, you're probably going to figure, well, you know, it's probably some sort of saint or something. And for me, he was a saint. His name was Jean Vanier, and that name may or may not mean anything to you. But really quite an extraordinary person. He's a founder of something called the L'Arche Movement, uh, L-A-R-C-H-E, the Ark. 
And it's a movement that's been around now for over 50 years. And what these are, are communities of people with physical disabilities, often very serious. And they live in communities, in houses. I mean, they're independent enough that they don't have to be receiving um, medical care in assisted facilities. But they cohabit these homes with people who don't have such similar disabilities. And there's usually one or two medical, professional medical personnel there, but by and large, they're like anyone in this room, the residents who come to live. And they just answer that call of the Spirit. And they get some training, and then there they live, side by side. And one of the most beautiful things happens, as you might imagine, because when every resident goes there, whether they have a physical disability or not, they have a vulnerability and they have a weakness. And each one thinks initially, well, my weakness is obvious or my weakness is hidden or I guess I don't have any weaknesses. And just living side by side, what quickly becomes apparent is that everybody has weaknesses and everybody has strengths. And everybody has the capacity to give love and everybody has the capacity to receive love and everybody has the capacity to withhold it and everybody has the capacity to refuse it. And this guy, Jean Vanier, V-A-N-I-E-R, he was a university professor, he was a, a successful officer in the Canadian Navy, and he gave all that up because a friend invited him to live with someone who had a disability, and that's what got this whole thing started. And it began to transform his life as he increasingly realized I have so many vulnerabilities that I try to hide from the world. And there's only one authentic way to live. And that only authentic way to live is to be able to say, yeah, this is who I am and I need you. And the point about the large community is for those folks without the physical disabilities to say to the folks who have them, I need you. I'm not just doing something kind and, you know, I'm receiving graces in return. We often talk that way. Now, this is at a much deeper level. I need you the way I need my spouse, the way I need my dearest friend. I need you because you have something to give me that I can't get elsewhere. It's called love. And what started as just a couple of people living in one borrowed house became this international movement. There's one in the Chicago area, and anyone can go and offer to volunteer. That's usually how it starts. I like to volunteer because this seems like a good thing. And then it either goes a little bit and then you realize, my gosh, this is a huge investment. And we step back from the sinkhole or all of a sudden you get sucked in. When I was in Washington, D.C., I was at Catholic U. Very fortunate to live in a parish at that time. And there was a large community not too far. And I used that large community. It was way more effective than anything I could do. And if you've ever lived in D.C., you know you got all these type AAA personalities. Everybody's tightly wound. And I was in a parish, large young adult community. And you know, the bus would pull in. Fresh-faced young adults with their newly minted degree would get off the bus. Then they'd go work for some agency that would chew them up and spit them out after a few months. And there'd be a lot of burnout and a lot of people saying, God, I came here so idealistic. How can this be the way it really is? 
And I used to say, well, you know, why don't you just go down to this, this place, go down to this Larsh house, because initially you just join him for a meal. And I'll never forget this one woman. She actually worked in the West Wing. That was the coolest thing for me. I said, you know, I hope you get some help, but I just want to hear about the White House. And she worked in the West Wing. That She really, you know, office of management and budget. And she came to work for the government because she wanted to make the world better. She did her analysis in healthcare. And she found herself doing calculations that just seemed to slash more and more from healthcare benefits. And it was really weighing on her. I said, well, why don't you go? Why don't you just go to the Larsh community? Just join him for dinner. And she's kind of reluctant. She took the card and time went by. She never let me know that she was going to go, but she eventually went. And she came back to see me. And she came back and she was carrying, you know, the jacket of her suit. And every day they'd have to wear these suits. And, and I, you know, typical guy, the last thing I noticed was a stain on her jacket. But she said, I want you to look at this. Look at what? Look at this. And there was a stain on her shoulder. She goes, look at this. That's slobber. <laughs> That's just how she said it. That's slobber. And she was telling me how before she even got up the walkway, you know, someone came running down and just hugged her and slobbered on her shoulder. And she said, if that had happened to me in the West Wing, someone would have been shot. And I'm saving this, she said. I'm not cleaning that off. And she had the jacket with her. I'm not going to say that everybody who goes to a large community has an experience like that. And this woman didn't quit her job, but she survived it. And she figured out a way to be true to what the Spirit was doing inside of her. And to not be defeated by a voice that says, no, this is all a waste. This is all a joke. Why did you blow it? And the door that opened into that new way of seeing, when the Spirit hatched something inside of her, it was that ability to be faced with someone who seemingly was crying out, here's my need. And because she could stay for dinner and could allow that germ to gestate, Eventually, she could begin to realize, yeah, there is something inside of me. I am on the edge of the sinkhole, and I am diving in, and it's wonderful to be there. So that was Jean Vanier, the guy who got this going. Very prolific author. You can see interviews with him all over YouTube. Near the end of his life, he got around to writing his magnum opus, trying to distill everything he'd learned over the course of his life. And he started this, remember, when he was a relatively young guy in his 40s, lived well into his 80s. And when it came down to writing his final attempt to put it all together, he called it Becoming Human. And I love that title, Becoming Human. Because he meant just that, and I believe him. We are less than human if we're not able to somehow acknowledge what that thing inside of us is that's holding us back, where that little breath of the Spirit is inside of us that wants to be hatched, where we want to say, I've got to be free. I can't be locked in. 
whether that's by my own self-perception, whether it's by how other people see me, whether it's by the limitations of my body or my health or my abilities or my talents. And he says, unless you can actually say, yeah, I got these weaknesses like everybody else and therefore I'm open to receive. Like I, even though standing as a pillar, a stone-faced pillar, was actually incredibly receptive because somebody noticed the crack. Vanier is saying, unless you can walk through that dynamic, you are less than human and don't kid yourself. We can hide our cracks, at least we think we can, but sooner or later, they have a way of coming to the surface. Maybe not as publicly as mine did on March 24, 2000. Maybe not as publicly as some of you have experienced or people in your lives, but they're there. And if we have the opportunity to be more fully human than we are, why in the world wouldn't we take the chance? If you want another drink, that's your business. If you want to be free, that's ours. Becoming Human, that's his book. Jean Vanier died last year. Yesterday, a news report came out that there's been an investigation credibly proved that he had abused six women uh, over the course of his ministry. Not minors, not women with disabilities, women that he was seeing in spiritual direction. As someone who does a lot of spiritual directing, I know how fragile those relationships are, how privileged they are. You're sitting with someone literally at the moment where they are in the depths of the sinkhole. And they're saying, I trust you. I trust that you won't let me drown here. I trust that you're watching. And as I fall, you're letting me be caught by that spirit. You're letting me be accompanied. I still haven't wrapped my head or my heart or my mind around that. And yet I know that this is one of those sinkhole moments. Because for me, even Vanier had become a fountain, a well. He had become for me somebody that I thought I understood. And by that, I don't just mean that I didn't understand the things he was struggling with or that he was doing. That, no, I didn't understand that either. But my point is, I thought I had him figured out. I'd read his books, I read that book, and I, I knew how to use him, if I can put it that way. I could tell the story about the girl in Washington, I could tell the story about being there that night on March 24th. All of that I had mapped out. All of that I said, yeah, when I go to St. Joe's, that's, that's what I'm going to share. And the Holy Spirit was just busting a gut, laughing, not in derision, but laughing as if to say, you fell into the same trap, John. Because all the good stuff, all the good writing, all the good spiritual writing, scripture, the sacraments, they're all wonderful, wonderful things. But at the end of the day, we can delude ourselves into thinking that we own them. We construct them. We shape them. We share what we want to share, how we want to share it, when we want to share it. We've got a message that we've constructed. Let me deliver it just right. And that, at the end of the day, is a trap, too. And what the Holy Spirit is always going to do is come along if we're open to it. And he's going to kick one stool out from under our legs after another. 
And just when we've fallen off one and we're thinking, okay, I, I got the message, Spirit, thanks, thanks, we, we've been through that one, let's go on. There's always another opening. And I'm not saying that to be a downer for anybody, but that's what it means. That's what it means to be who we are. We are not God. We are not the Spirit. And praise God, the Spirit is there. Because even now, in the midst of my sadness and grieving and frustration and anger and not being able to understand how this could possibly be true of Jean Vanier, even in the midst of that, I know it's not the end of all of this. I don't feel like a fraud. I don't think everyone who's living in a large community is a fraud. And even in all his brokenness and sinfulness, I don't think Jean Vanier was a fraud. But in and through him, just like in and through me, and in and through every broken, hurt person we know, and I'm not, please, I'm not making excuses for anybody or anyone. I'm simply saying that the worst decision you or I ever make will never separate us from the invitation if we're willing to embrace it. And the invitation is one that simply says, stop trying to construct what I look like. Allow yourself to be open. Allow yourself to be broken. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. And the Old Testament version of the Holy Spirit is just that. It's the invitation that says, have the courage to see the floor opening up underneath you and don't backpedal. Don't reach for something else. There really is a lifeline for you, but you've got to be willing to let yourself fall in. And when we gather tomorrow, it's going to be, what is that transformative process look like? Today we talked about manifesting, what it looks like when the Spirit makes the invitation. Hey, pay attention. Tomorrow, we'll talk about transformation. Well, what really happens? I've been making all these promises. What does it actually look like if something changes? We know what it looks like when we say the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. What does it look like inside of me when the change happens? And then on the third night, we'll talk about communication. Not how do we get a message out, but how do we make communion? communication. And for those of you who are in it, that's what these communities for the kingdom are really all about. These groups that you gather in. You have the little cards in your books. Please bring those back with you if you come tomorrow or, or Tuesday. And available on the stand in back, uh, Father Trout pointed out to me, a good book to lead you through Lent, perhaps. Live Lent, it's called, for groups and individuals. Some really good reflections for each day of Lent. But I hope you can hear what I'm saying for those of you who are in communities of the kingdom. If you've been meeting for a while, you've had those moments in your group. And maybe it's someone just saying, hey, Joe, what's going on? There, there, there's something, I can see it in your face. Or maybe you've spontaneously said, hey, can you guys pray for me? There's something going on here. Well, that's what it looks like. I've given some pretty dramatic examples, but most of the time, it's more subtle than that.
but use those opportunities when they come. And if you're not in one of these small communities, then I'd really encourage you to think about joining one. I'm only touching on that a little bit now. Tomorrow, they're really going to be front and center because these communities for the kingdom is how the New Testament got going, and it's ultimately what brings us back here. Just invite us now to sit a little bit of silence for some reflective music, and then we'll have our closing prayer.
The Lord be with you. The Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go forth and announce the gospel of the Lord.